chapter, verse by verse. Last week we were in Psalm 23. We saw David reflecting on his early childhood as a shepherd, reflecting that, turning his heart towards the Lord and knowing that his father was the great shepherd. Amen? And the, the thing that I, I think is so important about that was he made the statement that I shall not want because he knows what his father is able to do for him. Well, with that, he takes us into Psalm 24 where he will declare at the end that God is the king of glory. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. Let's read it and we'll come back. The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or the Lord's temple? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. And he shall receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Now, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. What do you think about that? Beautiful, isn't it? As David now is coming into what he is writing at the end is something future that we will see in a couple of weeks in the book of Revelation where Jesus will come in through the eastern gate into Jerusalem. In fact, that's what the last portion of this chapter is talking about, how he is coming into and will receive glory because he is the king of glory. Look at verse 1. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I say this all the time. I know. These are some of my favorite verses. But how, how, do you, how do you not read a verse like this and get excited about the team that we're on? Right? The earth is the Lord's. Okay. If it's his, then I need not worry about anything. I need not fear because it's my dad's globe. Got it? The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness and the world and those who dwell therein. Everything is here. Now, as a caveat to that, we know that this world is currently under the dominion of Satan. He is the prince of the power of this air. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and the devil said, all of these kingdoms and authority I will give to you if you would just bow down. Jesus didn't say, hey, punk, 
It's not yours, it's my dad's. He didn't say that. Because Adam, Adam had given, was given the title deed of the earth, and it was forfeited to Satan. So for a time, but at the end of the, at the, end of the day, at the end of Revelation, when we see Satan thrown into the pit, and then released, and then thrown into the fiery furnace, uh, where it will burn, he will, oh, I can't wait to get there. Don't you just want to see, uh, all right. At the end of the day, we need to know that the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. What does that tell us? That means it's his, it's not ours. He has a plan. It's his plan, it's not my plan. We need to stop. We need to stop thinking that God revolves around us. And I don't like his plan, so I'm going to come up with a different plan. That's what Abraham and Sarah thought. And look at what we have today. <laughs> Thanks a lot, family of the Ishmaelites and the issue in the Middle East. That's Abraham's fault. Now, I'm not telling you to punch him when you go to heaven. But like, are you kidding me? That's what you did? So if it's the Lord in its fullness and the world and those who dwell therein, then he can dictate. And as we've talked so many times, if it's the king's kingdom, he gets to make the rules and make the laws. The subjects follow the king's laws. Yes? So if it's his, then he gets to do with what he wants. Not only that, David says in verse 2, that he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And then he says this question. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? Now, without going too much off of the word, this is David saying, who can go into God's temple, into his presence? And remember, in this day, the Jew did not think that he could walk into the presence of God. Remember, only once a year could the high priest go beyond the veil into the holy of holies. But for us in the New Testament, we're told to Come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find mercy. So now we are the king's kids and we have access to God. But he says, and he answers the question in verse 4, those who have their hands clean. Not only clean, but with a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. So he has clean hands, innocent hands, not shed blood. He is um, unaffected by the things of the world, as well as a pure heart, sincere heart. Not somebody that is double-minded in the New Testament would say, and not a fence-sitter, not in the world, right? A little bit in the world, a little bit of the Lord. No, it is all in, a sincere and a pure heart. And who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Now, you read that and you're like, uh-oh, but then, then just for a moment, you go, uh-oh, and then you're like, oh, but we just sang that song. That we rise up because Christ has come out of the tomb. He has paid our sin. We're going to see that in the next chapter, how excited David is that the Lord pardons and he removes our sin. He's going to say, hey, don't remember my sins from my youth. Amen. We'll get into that. In verse 5, he says, 
he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So entering into, and again, we're going to see this over the next two chapters, what it's like to be in the presence of the Lord and in his house. But we receive a blessing from the Lord and the right on living from God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. And that's a, uh, the idea is pausing on that. So when we're seeking the Lord, he will be found. God's going to reveal himself. If we have a pure heart that we want to seek him, it is not the Saturday night prayer of God, right? None of you ever did the Saturday night prayer of God. Lord, would you please get me out of this? And if you do, I will never do that again. That's the Saturday night prayer. Then what happens next Saturday night? Lord, I know I said it last week, but if you get me out of this one this time, I'll never do it again, and on and on it goes. God is looking for a a sincere and a pure heart, and he's looking for those who truly seek his face. He says, lift up your heads, O you gates, and now David looks future down the road. And be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Now, who is this king of glory? And then he replies, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Now, at the writing of this, this is what's fascinating to me. At the writing of this, we don't have a temple mount. There's no temple mount, there's no temple, and there's no east gate. And yet David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing about something he hasn't seen yet. He's writing about a gate that Messiah will come in that won't happen for thousands of years. It's amazing to read the prophecies of the Old Testament about Christ. And so, who is this King of Glory, verse 8? The Lord strong and mighty. Please note with me, our Lord is strong and mighty, so why should we fear? If he is the one that's powerful, then we shouldn't worry. The Lord mighty in battle. Let the Lord fight the battles for us. Now, lift up your head, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting door, and the King of glory shall come in. Once Jesus puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, to which we will come back with him, we'll see that very soon in Revelation, he will walk down the Kindron Valley back up, and he will go through the East Gate. Now, if you were to go to Israel with us, you would notice that the East Gate is walled up. It's bricked up, and there is a cemetery in front of it. Now, the uh, Muslims... Well, they, they had learned about the prophecy that Messiah would enter into the East Gate. So they figured, hey, we'll block it up. Now, I just want you to just chew on that for a minute. You're going to do what now? You're going to put a bunch of stones and bricks and cement, and you think that's going to keep the Lord of glory out? Yep. Great plan. Wait a minute. He can't be defiled by a cemetery, so we'll put that in front of it. That's what they did. Now, I don't know about you, 
But if Jesus is going to come back and put his foot on the Mount of Olives and split it in two, could we not all believe that he just points at it and it all just does this? And I mean like melts the rock and the brick and the cement and the door. And it's like, and how about we throw in some new doors? I mean, just if the Lord, look at verse 1. If the, if the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness, this is the arrogance of man that thinks he can stop Messiah from walking into the east gate. Verse 10 says, Who is the king of glory? David tells us it is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Psalm 25. A psalm of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Let's read it and we'll come back. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, no one who waits on you will be ashamed. And let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without a cause. Show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, and on you I wait all the day. Now remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are of old. And do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. And the humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. And all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his commandments and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. For who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he chooses, and he himself shall dwell in uh, prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. And the secret of the Lord is those is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Now my eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The trouble of my heart has enlarged and bring me out of my distresses. Look on my afflictions and my pain and forgive all of my sin. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver it, deliver me, and let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let my integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of their troubles. We are not sure of the context of this chapter, but many believe that this was written by David, and you can hear it after his sin with Bathsheba. When you look through this psalm, you see clues here or there. So let's read it in the context of his sin, not only with Bathsheba, 
but his killing of Uriah the Hittite. So he says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And you can imagine David crying out to the Lord at this point, right? Nathan has come in and Nathan has given that proverb to him about the landowner and the sheep. And he says, the most powerful stinging line in all of the Bible, you are the man. It's you, David. And David breaks at that moment. Now God is starting to do a work in David's life. So now David says, Lord, I lift up my soul. Now notice what he says. He says, oh my God, I trust in you. David knew, listen, even when David was in trouble with God, he trusted that God was not going to destroy him. Failure doesn't mean that we are done with God. I, I, I wish that we would learn this in our nation, and I wish there, there would be a school curriculum on failure. I'm, I'm tired of everybody getting a trophy. That's not how you learn failure. Failure is wonderful, as Thomas Edison. Failure is awesome. It teaches us not to do that. And in David's life, David knew what failure was like, but he also knew that my God, in the midst of my failure, I lay myself at your hands. At, he's going to bring up your, your mercy. When you're in trouble, right, you want to bring up, hey, Lord, remember these? All right, we'll get to it. He says, let me not be ashamed and let not my enemies triumph over me. Sorry. Just jumped off my page there. As David declared his trust in God, he seems to speak more to himself than to God. You see, during this time, he is assuring himself of not only his trust in the Lord, but also the expectation of reward of that trust to not be ashamed before the Lord or his enemies. He says, let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. When Nathan was bringing this accusation and this parable to David, and once it was done, he said, Dave, look, <laughs> yeah, what you did was wrong. You killed somebody, and it was adultery, and the baby is going to die because of, of your sin. But even worse than that, David, it is now the enemies of Israel will now say, ah, and they will bring a stinging rebuke against the nation and against God. The enemies of God love to comment on Twitter and Facebook. They love it. They love to say, where is your God now? And all of the blaspheme they do. I mean, through the book of Revelation, aren't we encouraged that God will deal with the blasphemers? He'll deal with them. He'll deal with every post. I don't want to see that. Bring up the post. And he looks on the giant jumbo screen in heaven. Did you say that? Uh, I thought I deleted it. Well, we have a bigger hard drive <laughs> here in heaven than you do. And God has all of that. But the enemies of the Lord always want to throw it in our face. Amen? They love that. And that's why Nathan said what he said to David. Yeah, David, all of that's terrible. 
But let me tell you what's worse. The enemies of the Lord are now saying that against our God. And so, he says, indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. And let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without a cause. (laughs) Get them, God. Now listen to David as he is broken through this. He says, show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. He said, Lord, I'm I'm in your hands. I acknowledge we're going to see. He's going to say it. He's going to acknowledge his sin. He's going to ask for pardon. But he says, Lord, I'm in your hands. And the best thing that we can do is not run away from God in the midst of our failures, but to run to God. That's easy to say, isn't it? It's hard to do oftentimes. But this is what God wants. He wants us to run to him. And David says, well, Lord, then show me your way. Teach me your path. Now, through this, he's going to talk a lot about teaching. Everybody got that? And when when David is talking about that, I want you to, to hear it this way. Lord, show me your word. In your word, teach me your path. That is how we learn the ways of the Lord, through the book that you are holding or the electronic device you're holding. But he said, lead me in your truth and teach me. What was David's problem? David was being led by his truth, not God's truth. What felt good to David, not what was the Lord directed him to do. David had failed because he was supposed to go out as the kings go out to battle, and he decided that he would stay back that year. He didn't feel like going to battle. He didn't feel like going out and sleeping in a tent again another summer. He didn't feel like being around those sneaky soldiers again another year. I'm the king. Shouldn't I just be able to stay at home? Don't I have rights? And so our problem often is, I don't feel like it. And the Lord says, no. It's not about feeling. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, and on you I wait all the day. How many of you like waiting? Okay, just for the video, nobody likes waiting. Nobody likes waiting on the Lord either. Wait. Let's go back to Abraham. Waited for 25 years. And then said, I ain't waiting anymore. And then Sarah and him had the plan with Ishmael and Hagar. To wait on the Lord. Lord, what would you have for me? What are you trying to guide me in? Wait on the Lord. Having that quiet time to wait, notice, all the day. (laughs) And verse 6, and listen, when you're in trouble, you, you often will bring this up to God. 
Remember, O Lord, your loving uh, tender mercies and your loving kindness because um, they're of old. Reminding God, Lord, hey, de- deal kindly with your servant. Render, uh, render your tender mercies and your loving kindness. Our God is a loving God, and he is tender towards us. How much do we really deserve from the Lord apart from his son and salvation? So we're blown away by what he does in our life. When something goes wrong and you know that uh, you're about to receive a rebuke from the Lord and then he pours his grace upon you and you're blown away that now it's not the heavy hand of God It's not the old man who's in a gray wig with a hammer waiting to pound on you. You get blessed by something and you're just standing there like, I thought I was going to get a whooping. Your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are of old. And then David says, Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercies, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. So David, in the midst of what he is going through currently, he flashes and he goes, wait a minute, I've been a sinner from my youth. Lord, hey, don't bring up those sins. I don't know about you, but... Aren't you glad that God does not have control of the PowerPoint? Throw up the sins of our youth with your photo on it and all the stuff there. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. Transgression is different from a sin. Sin is missing the mark. You're aiming at it, but you got off. Loving kindness, or um, yeah, loving kindness. I was going to define that. No, transgression is willful disobedient. You know what God's word says, but you do something opposite of that. Good, verse 8, and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in his way. So we know that the Lord is good and upright. Everything that he does is yea and amen. Everything that God does is right. It is perfect. It is holy. Nothing God does is ever wrong. In your life, in my life, or in anyone else, there is nothing that God ever does is wrong. So it's usually our problem, isn't it not? We, the world loves to blame God, doesn't it? The insurance industry has a clause. The act of God clause. Like, look, uh, we're going to cover every base known to man, but just in case we have run out of people to blame, we're going to blame God. The acts of God. Oh, you're not covered. What do you mean? Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in his way. How does he teach us? By the way, we're still sinners. How does he teach us? It's the book that you're holding. This is how God communicates to human beings. 
In verse 9, he says, The humble he guides in justice, doing the right thing. And And the humble he teaches his way. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. God is always going to take us on a path of truth. The devil wants to take us on a path of lies and destruction and deception. But the Lord always is going to tell us the truth, even when we don't like the truth. It's not fun for me, but it is a little bit when people are sitting on a Sunday or a Wednesday and they hear God's truth and you can just see their face like, did my wife call you? Did my husband call you? Were you listening? No, but Google is. Apple is. Siri, she's listening. Now I just turned someone's phone on. God is listening, yes, but the Lord uses his word, his word to help us sinners. Saved by the blood of the lamb, but sinners nonetheless. And he, and he helps us. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimony. So David is saying the law and the prophets. Now we know in the New Testament, that Jesus says all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in these two things, to love God and love your neighbor, right? We have two commandments in the New Testament. I like that because the Old Testament has over 600. So how about you, but I can remember two. The 600, tougher. But when you love your neighbor, you're not going to want to steal from them. You're not going to want to murder them. You're not going to want to covet them. If you're going to love the Lord, then you're not going to blaspheme his name. You're going to keep the Lord's Sabbath, which is just a day of rest in the New Testament. You pick your day, whatever that day is, and it's between you and the Lord. I happen to work on Sunday. Have you figured that out? So... This, my Sabbath is not Sunday. It's a work day for me. He says, to, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Now, the Jewish rabbis said that up until this point in, this, in the book of Psalms, that David had not yet said, forgive me of my sin. So this is the first time in 25 Psalms that David says, pardon my iniquity. So, notice, who can echo this? You're in church tonight, so you have to. It's great, isn't it? Our iniquity is great. Our sin is great. I would just say, and all echo the excuse me, the heart of David, Lord, pardon my iniquity, my sin, the thoughts that I thought about this week, the anger that I felt towards our government with Afghanistan and the Taliban who are going to just brutalize women and our government who just doesn't seem to care and other nations who just don't seem to care what's going to happen to people there. And then the list just keeps growing. 
Lord, forgive us of that, for it is great. Verse 12 says, Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in his way he chooses. So the person who is reverent before the Lord, who is wanting the Lord to work in his life, he shall, uh, or, I'm sorry, him he shall teach in the way he chooses. This is the way that God chooses. It, not, it may not be the path that you choose. No show of hands. How many of you are on the path that you didn't choose? It's God's path. You said, I don't like this ride. I want off. I didn't choose this path. I didn't choose that direction in my life. I didn't choose that pain, that sorrow. I didn't choose that diagnosis. I didn't choose that. But God did. But he also knows what you can handle. And he will not give you more than what you can handle. Amen? He knows. This is, this is what's interesting. You may be sitting there and say, Lord, I, it, it, it's, it's too much. And he goes, no, it's not. A little bit more. And then you go, Lord, it's too much. <laughs> no, it isn't. A little bit more. A little bit more. A little bit more. God knows. He is wanting to break us so that we would be in the potter's hand and that he would put us back together for his purposes, notice, and for his choosing. And he himself, verse 13, shall dwell in prosperity, the one that's broken, the one that's on the path of the Lord, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. It will be well with him. And the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, to reverence him, to surrender to his will. And he will show them his covenant. And my eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. David knew what it was like. He's about to go through Absalom. He's going to go through a coup d'etat. He's going to see his family ripped apart and the struggles through his life. He's going to see his enemies wanting to kill him. But he knows my eyes are ever towards the Lord. What was uh, Peter's problem? By the way, uh, I know that was like an open-ended question. You're like, how much time we got? <laughs> What was Peter's problem when he got out of the boat? Not that he got out of the boat, and by the way, give the guy a high five. He's in heaven. I was the only guy on water. Right? The only human being that has walked on water. Remember, Jesus was fully God, fully man. Doesn't count. Pete was on, I mean, yes, amazing, in the midst of the storm. But what was Peter's problem? He took his eyes off the Lord, and he looked at the storm raging, and then he went down. And I love this account in the Bible, and I would love to see the video, because did Jesus, did, did he just walk over and pick him straight up, or did he just pull him through the water a little bit? That'll teach you. I, this is why I'm not God, because I'd be like, you need to stay down for a while. <laughs> But at least he was out of the boat. Peter did amazing things. Guy jumped in the water. It must be the Lord. Jumps out of the boat to swim to the Lord. And then he did dumb things too. But 
He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. And the secrets of the Lord are with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, and he will pluck my feet out of the net. He said, turn yourself to me, in verse 16, and have mercy on me. For I am desolate and afflicted. Now David, once again, David knows how to show and tell, excuse me, his heart to the Lord. And he says, Lord, I'm desolate and I'm afflicted. I'm in a bad place right now. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. He said, bring me out of these distresses. The best place to turn to in the time of desolation and affliction is not to what the world says, but to Jesus. He is the healer. He is the great physician. We often want to turn to medication faster than we turn to the Lord. Now, he said, Consider my enemies, (laughs) for they are many, and they hate me with a cruel hatred. The, The enemies of our God hate us. Jesus said, if they hated you, they will hate me. Wait a minute. If they hated me, they'll hate you. You got it. You figure it out. If they wanted to crucify the Son of God, would they not want to do the same to us? So don't ever be shocked. We learned that on Sunday morning. Don't be shocked what the world does and what the world is about to do with the Christian world. He said, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. He started the the psalm out with that. Lord, I am in your hands. I put my trust in you. That is a hard statement to say. Why is it hard to say in the world in which we live in? Because we have so many resources to get ourselves out of problems. It's a modern world in which we live in. Before, when you didn't have bread, you didn't have bread. If the crop didn't come in, the crop didn't come in. And now, when we're empty of bread, we just walk to the store or wherever, and we open up the pantry, and there's another loaf. You see, we have a different world today. We actually live in a world that, well, we can get by without God a a lot, can't we? And we don't necessarily need to say to God, give us this day our daily bread. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. And let integrity and uprightness preserve me. So he has allowed his integrity to go away. Now now David is a byword to his enemies. So he needs to build that back up. You notice, for I wait for you. Lord, I'm going to put all of my trust in the situation that I am in you. And he says, redeem Israel, O God, out of their troubles. (laughs) He caused them. David was the cause of the troubles of Israel. Um, where did I go? There you go. Psalm 26. Uh, 
Now, David says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity, and I've trusted in the Lord, and I shall not slip. So now imagine David has gone a while, and David now is repairing, right? He's trusting in the Lord. Things are coming back in his life, and yet he still has the voices of the enemy because the voices of the enemy don't stop, do they? They might disappear for a little bit. It said when, when the devil was uh, tempting Jesus, it said at the end of it, he left, but he would be back at an opportune time. There's always that time that the devil will come back. And it's often in the times that we least expect it. And so he says, Lord, I have done all of this, so vindicate me. For I have walked in my integrity. And I have also trusted in the Lord, and I shall not slip. So after all of this, I've trusted in you, Lord. Listen to what David says. How many of you are willing to say this statement right now? Examine me, O Lord. (laughs) Can't he examine somebody else? Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. The idea is show me. Try my mind and my heart. We probably shouldn't have read that verse, shouldn't we? Is that heavy or what? But this is David on the other side of his failure. He has allowed the Lord to do it, and now he is coming back. He said, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. And I have walked in your truth, which means I have walked in your word. David allowed the word of God to minister to him through his troubles. He said, I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go with the hypocrites. And so David is keeping himself away from the ungodly. Now, in the New Testament, we can't hold to that in the way that you think, which is, hey, we'll just create a Christian state and all the Christians will move to that state. Remember that? A couple of years ago, they were trying to create a Christian state in the the U.S. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to move there because people would just complain all the time. The music's too loud, the air conditioning in the chairs, oy vey, the stained glass. There's no steeple on the state. It would be on and on and on. Why? Because Christians know how to complain like nobody else. Trust me. I hear it. I hear it. I read it. Oh, you commenters. I'm going to turn the comments off from now on. It would do my heart well. But David knew that. He knew these idolatrous mortals. But for us as believers, we live in a fallen world. We are the light We are the light on the hill so that people are attracted to the truth. That's why it's so important as a church that we be not like the world and just when they come in, it's no different than an infomercial that they see, that there is something different here, that they hear the truth, they hear about their sin, their failure, and how Jesus Christ can forgive them and set them free. Not some feel-good fluff message but truth in their life. So for us, we would love to say, Lord, put us on a Christian whatever and separate us, but we can't do that. He said, 
I have hated the assembly of the evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now, this is not, and we need to be careful here, because this doesn't say, well, in order for me to reach out to this group, I need to go to the bar. That's just foolishness and, dare I say, dumbness. That's not what God is telling us at all. Because we can be around people without going into the den of iniquity. (laughs) And our father would probably tell us, don't do that. Don't go in there. He said, I will wash my hands in innocence. And so I will go about your altar, O Lord. And now he's bringing it to the house of the Lord. He said, that I might proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all of your marvelous works. If nothing else, the life of a believer is telling the people on planet Earth that there is a God, that he loves them, he died for them, and he has a purpose for them. If nothing else, to declare who God is. That's what the nation of Israel was for, what God had set them apart to do. They had failed in that by the time Jesus came on the scene. In verse 8, it says, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Now, let's put it into New Testament words. Lord, I love gathering with the body of Christ at church. How many of you, I mean, look at you. You're on Wednesday night. You're a bunch of weirdos. You've been to church twice this week. What's wrong with you? How many of you, no showing. I mean, you like being around believers. You like coming to church. What's wrong with you? You come to a prayer meeting. You go to a men's group. You go to women's Bible study group. You go to the foundations class. Are you out of your mind? Listen to David. I love hanging out with God's people. What was it like hanging out with sinners? So much better to be in the house house of the Lord. I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Now, for David's purposes, of course, he's talking about the temple. But God dwells now in this house with us. Where two or three are gathered, so is where the Lord is. That's why we welcome him every time we are gathered together. By the way, he doesn't, you know, when we leave, God isn't just saying, hey, I'll see you guys on Sunday. (laughs) This is an empty building. Trust me, I'm here all week. It's an empty building. Makes strange noises, too. Kind of creepy sometimes. He says, Do not gather my soul with the sinners, nor my life with the bloodthirsty men. In whose hands is a sinister scheme? And whose right hand is full of bribes? But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Again, coming back to the beginning of the chapter. Redeem me and be merciful to me. (laughs) And he says it again in verse 12. My foot stands in an even place in the congregation. I will bless the Lord. David knew what it was like to gather in the house of the Lord, to be around God's people, and all of the failures of his life and all the failures in this room. We have all failed. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. But when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? 
all unrighteousness. I love it when people come and they'll do counseling and they'll say something like, Pastor, but you don't know what I've done. <laughs> uh, God does, and he just told me. No. No. But nothing, nothing shocks a pastor. And nothing shocks the Lord. He died for your sins. No matter how great the sin is, he died for your sin. He said, my foot stands on an even place. When I come into the house of the Lord, it's an even playing field. There is no Jew nor Gentile, no free nor slave, nor man nor woman, but we are all one in Jesus Christ. I would add, there is no white nor black, nor brown nor yellow, or whatever the color of the rainbow is out there. There is one blood. And that blood died for us. And so when we bring all of that nonsense into the church, we are disobeying what the Lord has called the church to do. And when we come in here, our feet stand on an even place. Even. He says, lastly, in the congregations, I will bless the Lord. One of the great things... um, about being in church, but also just like I, I stand in the back, we're making sure all the media is working, is just to hear the church worship the Lord. When we used to have senior pastor conferences in California, we would there would be about 800 Calvary Chapel pastors um, at Marietta, and it would be amazing to hear 800 of us Calvary pastors worshiping the Lord. It's amazing what the sound of worship is, and it's amazing what the congregation is when it blesses the Lord. Well, read ahead. Next week, as we go through, continuing through the book of Psalms, I know you're excited for (laughs) Sunday as we, the title is, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? The book of Revelation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word for this day to be in the house of the Lord, to be gathered with your body of believers, Lord, to be encouraged and strengthened by your word. Lord, through the failures of David, through our own failures, Lord, that we would trust in you and that we would lay our life in your hands. And we know that you're a good, good father. And everything that you do for us, your way, And the path that you choose is right. And we say yea and amen. So Lord, thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, amen.